I'm Sarah Heiner, president of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert-sourced, expert-vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to John Taffer, host and executive producer of the very popular television show, Bar Rescue. He's rescued more than a thousand bars and restaurants in his nearly 40 years of industry experience and is an internationally recognized, award-winning hospitality and business consultant. Along the way, John's discovered that the key to business failures are the excuses that people make about their failings, and that the key to success is to deal with the realities rather than to hide behind those excuses. He shares his no BS strategies for overcoming excuses in his great book, Don't Bullshit Yourself, Crush the Excuses That Are Holding You Back. You can see John work his magic on Bar Rescue on the Paramount Network and learn more about his business wisdom at johntaffer.com. So John, welcome. I'm so glad to talk to you. Great to be here, Sarah. I'm a fan of your work. Oh, thank you so much. And you know, Bottom Line and John Taffer and your book are actually kindred spirits because Bottom Line always says that we empower people's lives with our expert advice and we want them to be in action. And you embrace solutions rather than excuses. So we're really kind of on the same mission in life. We are. You're, you're also, uh, what I love about you is you're very always very to the point. You know, you, re you really get to the, the task at hand. You're very direct, if you will in the way you present your information. And I guess I'm similar uh, in a way to that as, uh, as well. Well, you're right. I mean, you're direct when you get people and you nail them on what excuses they're making. I mean, there's no questioning that one. So let's talk about excuses. I mean, I can only imagine the millions of excuses that you've watched, listened, and heard over the years. I know that, like, I listen to excuses all day, every day, and it's frustrating as hell. And really, like, it holds the world back, right? Oh, it does. And, and, you know, I, I sort of sensed it my whole life and I've been one who's busted people who have given me excuses or, or, or BS me or gave me mistruth or leaned on something that in essence served as an excuse. It always bothered me and I always challenged them, but I never put the pieces together like I did about three years ago. And, and I want to tell you the story, Sarah, cause it's, it's pretty powerful. I'm doing my bar rescues and I've done now about 120 of them uh, at this point. Now I've done 180 of them. And I always ask somebody, why are you failing? And nobody ever, Sarah, came up and said, gee, John, I'm failing because of me. Never once. They always are failing because of the recession, the economy, the president, the Congress. I had a business owner in Michigan once tell me that they were failing because of the euro in Greece. That's how far reaching these excuses are. So after about 120 episodes, I said to myself, Everybody has an excuse. It's the common denominator of failure is excuses and excuses paralyze us. They cause us to be inact, inactive and to not proceed with something that must be important enough for us to create the excuse. So, Sarah, in working all this through for a year before I wrote the book, I lived thinking about excuses and their impact. And, you know, the definition of an excuse is a powerful thing when you really think about it. An excuse is a reconciliation of a mistake. Or it's a lie to yourself, right? Yeah. I mean, either you did something you shouldn't have, you didn't do something you should have, or you messed something up or you wouldn't need the excuse. I mean, do you think people even go to the level of reconciliation? Like, I think that people are so unaware of their excuses that they just make them. Oh, I agree. So you're saying they go all the way to Greece to explain their problem in Michigan. Yeah, they get so creative in finding that excuse. It's almost the more creative it is, the better it feels. But I always say that they take that excuse and they cuddle up with it at night, and that's how they live with their failures. So we reconcile our failures with excuses. So if we stopped using excuses, we'd have to start making better decisions, and we couldn't be inactive anymore, could we? Well, it's totally true. So I was listening to a parenting tape years ago about behavioral issues with my kids or with kids in general. And the temptation of parents is always to say to their kids, why did you do that? And this guy said, you should never do that. Never ask your kids why they did it. Because what really happens is you're asking them for an excuse and it gives them a reason not to be accountable. When you need people to do is to just be in action in their life and not to make up excuses and not to set the platform for them for excuses. Well, I think that's brilliant. We're actually conditioning them to search their mind to come up with an excuse that they can and their parents can live with. So it's complete preconditioning to use excuses. I think that's a brilliant you observation. Can, you can share that for me in the future. I sure will. I'm going to use that. I'm making <laughs> it up right now.
<laughs> well, there you go. It's all yours. Now, let me ask you this. In the land of chopper parents, and we know that chopper parents are hovering over their kids and making sure they don't get in trouble. And I recently read about what they call lawnmower parents who are doing everything for their kids. Do you think that excuses are becoming an even bigger problem for the next generation? I mean, parents are making excuses for their kids, and then kids are growing up unaccountable for things. Yes, I think that the entire family dynamic has changed. When I was a kid, if I didn't facilitate my responsibilities, do what I had to do, dress properly, act polite in front, there were consequences for me. I was held to account. Today, Ah, little Johnny doesn't feel good today. Ah, give little Johnny a break. Ah, little Johnny tried as hard as he could. Families nurture failure today far more than we did 20, 25 years ago. Oh, like and crazy. That, and, and that nurturing of failure is horrifying to me. But I see it every day. And I see it in businesses run by families as well. They, they, you know, they, 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 they appease each other in failure as they lose money. But they don't hurt their family member. Oh, no, of course not. They'd rather hurt their own wallet, which makes no sense. I always say there's no such thing as a family business. Within the four walls of the business, you better darn well be a team, not a family. Teams don't accept non-performance. Families do nothing but nurture non-performance, make you feel bad when you fail. Well, it's so true. And again, going back to these parents and children. So not only are the parents not holding their kids accountable, they're role modeling a lack of accountability. Completely. I completely agree with that. Yeah. It's a crazy, crazy thing. All right. So let's talk about excuses because you've got six major types of excuses, the different categories that you found people to use. So can we walk through them? Yeah. And they're the most common that I've come across. Of course, the first one is fear. And, you know, I always, uh, 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 fear is the most common too. It seems to me people are scared to invest, scared to change your job, scared to do this, scared to do that. But, you know, when you think about it, what you're scared of, thousands, if not millions of people have already done. So unless you're standing on the edge of a cliff <laughs> or about to step into a burning house, there's really nothing to be fearful of when you consider the fact that that fear has been overcome by so many others before you, whether it's investment, having a child, moving forward with a big step in one's life. It's all been done before. Your fear is completely internal. It's illogical. So some people, though, they always have an excuse. Like they've got their fear, but then they'll say that their circumstance is different than my circumstance. Well, yeah, but they're not. They're not different. So, so you know, the circle, I'm scared to make the investment. Okay. How about using a different word? I don't find the investment to be prudent because if you're scared to make it, then you shouldn't be in business at all, <laughs> right? So let's understand the difference between fear and logic. And we shouldn't use the word fear when we're using logic. So often we say, I'm scared to invest. I'm scared. You're not scared to invest. Some cases you looked at the numbers and you didn't like them. <laughs> so fear is sometimes a false excuse that, that's used inappropriately as well. Does fear change over time? I mean, are younger people more fearful than older people? I think sometimes it's the other way around. I, th I, I find that, that youth can be yes, less fearful. And, you know, one of the greatest examples, you know, to me is look at skiing. When you're 15 years old, you point your skis straight down the mountain, you go right down the mountain. When you're 50 years old, even if you have the physical ability to do that, you're not going to take that chance. You're going to go down that mountain a lot slower. <laughs> well, that rehab gets a whole lot harder when you get older. It does. And I, and I think the same is, is true for mental endeavors. You know, I think that as we get older and we get wiser, I think sometimes we're greater risk takers, but I think generally we can be more cautious too. Interesting. Because I would think that almost the wisdom of age would make you a little less fearful because you have more perspective. I think it goes both ways. Yeah. How about men versus women? I'll probably ask you about men versus women a lot on these because I'm totally intrigued by the difference between men and women in their behaviors and excuses. Well, I think women are generally more courageous if I can make such a, a, you know, a terrible generalization. Yeah, none of this is gender slams at all. Because honestly, I think that men operate differently than women. But I'm interested, why do you say women are more courageous than men? Well, you know, in my business, the hospitality business, where you know, I've run hotels and, and large restaurants and high-volume operations my whole life, you know, 30, 40, $50 million operations, and very rarely do I find a female general manager in my business. It's just not something you see that's very common. But the ones that I've seen are the best I've ever seen. 
So, you know, I find that that there is an inherent risk taking and a certain toughness uh, uh, that a female can can seem to project more effectively than a male sometimes. Also, a female can flip uh, into family mode and pull employees in and switch right to another mode and push them back. It's a lot easier for females to push in and push back than it is for men. Well, that's true. And you and I were talking before about, you know, I'm running this company, you're running your company. And I find that I definitely go back and forth regularly between family interactions and then, you know, you got to be tough and you got to make the tough decisions. And it's not easy. It is not. All right. So let's move on to excuse number two, knowledge. I don't know enough. I don't know that area. I don't have enough experience there. You know, I find knowledge works both ways, Sarah. People also say, oh, I'm overqualified for that. That's going to bore me. Uh, you know, that's <laughs> so people use knowledge both ways as the excuse serves them well. You know, tell that knowledge excuse to Stephen Jobs when he was in his garage with no money, no anything, creating a whole new industry. Some of the greatest entrepreneurial stories of all. Henry Ford didn't know how to build cars. <laughs> Stephen Jobs didn't know how to build computers. I don't know how to do uh, television shows nine years ago. So to suggest that knowledge is an excuse to not proceed with something is crazy, especially today, Sarah, with all of the online resources and knowledge resources that are available, your company being one of them. Well, it's true. And actually, I would think that having more knowledge brings them back to fear. Like, and the thing again, so we've been around for 40 years. We've been doing a lot of repeat things. And I find there's a lot of excuses that have come up. We've tried it already. That's not the way we do it. But meanwhile, there's Stephen Jobs in his garage and Dell in their garage, and all these people are breaking out of the box of doing it. I mean, as you say, without the knowledge, but without the fear. But, you know, yes, but ignorance can be very well-serving sometimes because ignorance means you have no box to step out of. You're just out of the box in the first place, <laughs> right? Knowledge creates that box that we all tend to stay in that limit, uh, sometimes limits creative thought and such. But I find that the, the, the knowledge excuse is one of the biggest uh, 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 fake ones that there could possibly be. I could understand fear in some situations. I can't understand somebody accepting a lack of knowledge. I wouldn't be where I was today, and you wouldn't be where you were today if we accepted that premise. Well, and totally agree. And you make the case regularly through the book about the productive use of time. So like, there's so many places for people to gain more knowledge, especially right now online. There's online, there's YouTube, there's videos of everything. So literally, my daughter this morning sends me a note. She texts me a picture of a button and her jacket. Well, apparently, I never taught her how to sew. So I sent her a link. Here's the YouTube video of it. I mean, no matter what it is, you can find out how to do it. And there's no excuse for not having knowledge. And what about the days when we didn't have that online knowledge, when you just went out and did it? <laughs> right, Sarah? You didn't have YouTube. You didn't have, but you just went and figured it out. And, and, and frankly, that's what my business is doing. There's nobody in the publishing business that gets this. We're all reinventing this. We're inventing it as we go along because they haven't figured out how to make money in digital content. They haven't figured out how to appeal to people with information when the bar of excellence has gotten so low in some cases, like they'd rather look at viral videos of pussycats rather than spending constructive, productive time viewing something of value. Yeah, I used to run the nightclub and bar media group and we switched all of our industry magazines to digital years ago. And look, I don't have to tell you, it's a nightmare. Advertisers still don't quite understand digital products sometimes. They didn't move so easily from print to digital. It was a huge, huge challenge. And then the fact is that a company like yours works so hard on their content and the credibility and, and the researching and the verification to make sure that everything is right. And then somebody else launches some website and doesn't do any of that and puts out garbage information, which challenges us all. So this digital universe is a very challenging one with regard to content credibility as well as trying to make money from content. Well, it is. And you make a big case in your book, and I 1,000% agree with you about the importance of learning a business from the bottom and understanding the intimate details of everything. And that like, no job is too small, no job is too low, so that the more you know, the more knowledge you have. The bigger base of knowledge you have in any business, you have so much more power every step of the way moving up. Oh, yeah. I say it a different way. One of the worst things in life that could ever happen to you, Sarah, would be for you to be held hostage. 
And if your employees know more than you, you are now a hostage. <laughs> and you cannot manage a business from a defensive standpoint. You know, it's like the restaurant manager with a chef who knows more than him. Who works for who in that situation? Oh, yeah. Well, I always say that one of the biggest downfalls and dangers in business in general is that at some point the chief technology officer reports into the senior boss who isn't a technologist. And there's no way. I mean, we can all understand a lot of information you can pick up easily. But technology and programming, and to know what's going on under those covers, it's virtually impossible, and you can't sit on your programmer's lap. No, you can't. I'm sitting uh, in my production studio here in Las Vegas now, and, and I can honestly tell you I have a team of people that work for me. I pulled every wire and built this by myself uh, because I had to learn how to do it. You know, I had to understand the mixing board, the video production equipment, the editing. I had to know it myself to be able to live in it because uh, I'd be hostage to my production team if I wasn't. So, so, you know, I actually put the time in to make sure I'm never in that situation. Exactly. And that's what's made you so good. So I counsel a lot of young adults because my kids are in their early 20s. So I've talked to their friends a lot. And I always talk about the fact that a lot of young adults are getting out of college and they're feeling like they're too good for those entry-level jobs. And like, how come I haven't gotten promoted yet? And how come, you know? And I always say, you didn't get a degree in vice president. <laughs> you need to learn those basic skills. It's, it's interesting. It's, it's like to them, a, a seven-digit job doesn't exist, you know? Or, or, or rather, a six-digit job uh, isn't good enough for them, or a five-digit job. Uh, uh, I believe that there's a lot of factors that play into that. And I think one of them is what I call the immediate gratification syndrome, and that's my term. You know, if you woke up this morning, Sarah, and made yourself look your absolute worst, had your hair sticking up, put, you know, marks all over your face, and put that picture on social media, some of your friends would say, you look great today. What a great outfit. You look terrific. So what happens is we post stuff today, and we get this false immediate gratification. So young people today post whatever it is they post. Within minutes, they get likes and comments, and they get this instant gratification. And no different than the parent who programs their kid for excuses, they're now getting programmed for this instant gratification. But, Sarah, you and I know that life doesn't provide gratification instantly. You know, it took you years to lead your company. It took me years to get where I wanted to go. I didn't get promoted right away when I was an employee. So what happens is they're so used to this gratification happening so quickly. They go out in life and it doesn't happen, so they bail. So they don't stay with the job long enough so that the promotion or the raise does happen. And I see them bounce. And I see some great talent that just doesn't stick it out long enough to really get the benefit out of the position that they're in. And I find that immediate gratification syndrome to be a very powerful thing when I interview and work with millennials. I totally agree. And, you know, so the cycle time on everything, it's not just the likes on Facebook, but the cycle time of life. I mean, before we had computers, we were very happy to get a fax or we were very happy to wait a day or two in the mail. And now... When you see that spinny thing on the computer for five seconds, you're dying, right? Oh, yes. I just had that this morning. I'm ready to rip my eyes out because I got my little wheel spinning on me. You know, it's fascinating when we look at those things. I remember when FedEx happened. And now, oh, no, everybody needs everything overnight now, right, Sarah? Suddenly everything was overnight. Then when faxes started, again, it became now everything has to be today. It's not even overnight is acceptable anymore. Sometimes I think that's affected our quality of work, our quality of deliberation. You know, in life, there's three things, good, fast, and cheap. You typically get two of the three, if it's right? So, so that, that accelerated pace sometimes, I think, hurts us. It's interesting, actually, because a lot of the business development strategy used to be, you know, you do your strategy, you do your research, you do your planning, and then you launch. And now it's test and pivot, test yep. and pivot, test and pivot. And a lot of the business practices now really are a much different timeline. Mistakes are not a problem, which is fine, as long as you can afford to rebuild and redo. So it's a whole flip of viewpoint. But nonetheless, back to your critical point within the book is that I think accumulating knowledge and taking the time to develop th that knowledge, critical for anybody's success. It is. I just don't understand how somebody expects to be successful without knowledge in today's technical and sophisticated world. There's not one business 
that isn't far more sophisticated today than it was 10 years ago. Uh, uh, so, so not one. So to, so to suggest that one can get into that world with a greater level of ignorance in a world that requires a greater level of knowledge is just foolish. Yeah. And I think we need to start a patience as a virtue slogan. <laughs> I agree. And instant gratification is not always real gratification. Not at all. You know, instant gratification comes and goes. I mean, it goes away as quickly as it got there. It's not that satisfying. All right. Let's talk about time. Actually, speak about time and instant gratification. I love your view on time because you say that time is the great equalizer. That no matter what level, no matter what your job, no matter your financial status, you all start the day with the same 24 hours. And what are you going to do in it? I love that. Exactly right. And you have no benefit over me in that regard, do you? Only benefit you have is how you use that time. It's the, it's the fairest allocation in life is the allocation of time that we all have. You know, it's interesting. I always look at somebody who says, you know, they come up to you, Sarah, you know, I, I know you gave me a task. I just didn't have the time to do it yesterday. And I always try to pick that apart. You know, I wonder how long they were on their computer for social media, how many phone calls they made. And, you know, I would say if you woke up tomorrow morning, Sarah, and you decided that you want a purple striped shirt, and that was the most important thing in the world to you, it was really important, you would find that purple striped shirt, wouldn't you? Oh, without a doubt. So if somebody says to you, I didn't have the time, that's not what they're saying. What they're saying was, your project wasn't important enough to me to make the time. Because if you wanted that purple shirt enough, you'd get up early, you'd go up late, you would do what it took to make it happen. So time is the ultimate insult of all. When somebody says, I didn't have the time, there's nothing more insulting than that. What they're saying to you is it wasn't a priority. It wasn't important to them. The other parts of their day, including social media and messing around or playing around or daydreaming was more important to them than the task that you assigned to them. Time, that excuse is more than an excuse. It's an outright insult. I agree, but let me ask you this. How many people honestly don't know how to manage their time? You mentioned Alan Lakin's book, which actually was one of my father's favorite books in the world. Alan Lakin was a dear friend of his. It's a great um, book. It's a great book, How to Manage Your Time in Your Life. How many people have no clue about setting the basic priorities? I think most of us. I think most of us, wouldn't you agree? I uh, it seems that way, based on the fact of how many people complain that they don't have time. I mean, you wonder how many people wake up in the morning, they go in the bathroom, they're combing their hair, and they're brushing their teeth, and how many of them really know what their day is going to be like today? Or how many of them just follow it? You know, so it, it's like the old story of the guy driving a bus. You can either drive in the bus or you can drive the bus. Your day is the same way. You can either let your day drive you or you can drive your day. I find that most people let their day drive them. Do you teach people to do the most basic of making a list, like a priority list for each day, which literally takes five minutes? Like, what are the five things you just have to get done today? I, I, I am a huge proponent in that. I advise that people do that. I also believe that people look at their lives, and I, I say as, as balls on my desk. So I can handle about eight balls, meaning every day each ball is a project to me or a task or something that I must accomplish. I must move all eight balls every day. If I don't move every ball every day, I can't live with myself. Now, if I get up to nine or 10 balls, I know I'm going to have a problem, Sarah. I can't move that many every day. You see what I mean? So it teaches me to manage my own expectations of how many projects or balls, so to speak, I can have on my desk to move forward each day. But I must understand what those eight balls are. I must understand what those priorities are. And I must allocate my day to achieve those objectives. If not, the balls don't move, which means my life doesn't move. And people seem to lose connection with that. Let me ask you this, because your makeup seems to be that you have a high level of integrity. You take responsibility for things. You want to be sure that things happen the way that they should happen. Now, were you always that way, or did you develop that over your life? You know, I'm proud to say this, and if Nicole, my wife, is listening, she'll be happy that I said it, because I normally don't say things like this. But my wife always tells me that I'm always the example in the room. And I always have been, actually. I wasn't a good student in school, by the way. I did not do very well in school. Uh, I was very undisciplined. I didn't have a great attention span. If a teacher was great, they could hook me and I would be involved. But I was not a great student in school. Uh, uh, I was a great performer for what was always important to me. 
I didn't have as much discipline when I was young with the things that I didn't like doing as much as I do today. But that's just human, and, and that's okay. But in the end, you've evolved over time, and you're very accountable, and you make sure you're accountable. There are a whole lot of people, back to the excuses, back to the parents not teaching kids to be accountable, and that they're teaching them that excuses are okay. I mean, how many people don't have that basic integrity of excellence? Yeah. To, to, to be able to get over your excuses. I mean, how do you get people who are oblivious to their excuses to become aware of this? You know, I think that you use a really fascinating word, which I don't think I would have applied to this purpose, which is the word of integrity. I think it's integrity to yourself, Sarah. You know, I think it's a responsibility that we have to ourselves. We make promises to other people all day long. When, when the heck do we make promises to ourselves? Right. And, and without those promises to ourselves, then, you know, we don't have integrity, I think, to ourselves. So, so you know, that comes back to, to, to managing your time and your knowledge in a way that, that serves you well and fulfills the, the promise to yourself. Right. And so at the end of the day, you can look back and go, oh, I did it. Yeah, no, I'm, a, I'm not. I mean, I'm not. If you worked with me, it would not be unusual for you to get an email from me at two in the morning. Now, I'm not a nutcase. I don't sit up and work at two in the morning. But if something isn't done and it bothers me because it's not done, then I am working at two in the morning because I can't accept not doing it. I can't accept disappointing myself. And I find that and people that know me well tell me this all the time. As much as you see me tough on people on TV, I'm far tougher on myself than I am on anyone else. By far. Yeah, by far. Right. But but that's. I think that's one of the hallmarks of a great leader. I think lead by example. I mean, you make sure that you're as accountable as anybody else is or more accountable than anybody else is. Yeah, if I can't live with myself, how the hell can anybody else live with me, right? Well, if you pay them well, I mean, they'll stay with you for a while. <laughs> All right, let's talk about circumstances because a lot of people like to blame their circumstances. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's the economy. Oh, it's the weather. Oh, it's the whatever as though there's no control over it whatsoever. Oh, I love that. And sometimes, you know, you, you, you can take circumstance and flip it. I'll tell a funny story. Years ago, I opened a huge nightclub in Seattle, Washington. It had a huge outdoor deck, and everybody says to me, John, you're a nutcase. It rains like 70% of the time here. You'll never use the outside deck. Well, what they didn't know is I had put these metal poles all around the deck that held these huge umbrellas, and you could pick them up and walk around with them, and it was really cool. And rain was a large part of the concept. So I turned the circumstance from a liability into an asset. Another quick story. Doing a restaurant in Holiday Inn Hotels, I used to be the vice president of a Holiday Inn franchise. And in the 80s, the hotels were really worn out and the marketplace was terrible and it was no business. So the corporation says, you got to remodel all these places, John, or we're going to take the sign down. Well, I created a concept called the village marketplace where nothing matched. And I moved furniture from place to place, made nothing match, and put restaurant concepts together for $200. Scarcity is bull. People create companies all the time with nothing. My grandfather used to say to me, and you'll use this quote, Sarah, if you don't have a thick checkbook, you better have a thick idea book. Because, you know, ideas don't always require money. Uh, uh, ideas can generate money. People will stand in line to give you money if you got a great enough idea. But my point is that to suggest that scarcity, uh, uh, you know, not having money, not having a big enough this or enough of that, that is never an excuse for success. Uh, uh, most businesses start from a position of scarcity. Wouldn't you agree? Well, and I do agree. And I think, again, it puts you into a victim land. I mean, Yes. If you blame the circumstances. Oh, yeah. Woe is me. I have no time. You know, I have no scarcity. I don't have any knowledge. Uh, you know, I can't possibly make it, Sarah. Well, <laughs> it's so funny, actually, because I literally used to say this. So 2008, 9, 10, economy was in trouble. Publishing, direct mail, all a mess. Yep. And the Internet was coming on. So we're all really struggling, scratching our heads, and had a couple of tough years. And we'd sit in meetings and have conversations of, Oh, the economy. And I'd say, no, 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 stop there. Because across the street was the Apple Store. And across the street was Capitol Grill. And they were packed. Packed. Packed at both of them. Yep. I mean, Apple, okay, cool toys, whatever. You got to have the new hot toy. But even Capitol Grill, high-end steakhouse, lunch and dinner. So if you have a product that somebody wants badly enough, or if you have a service and you do it right, to your point earlier, 
people have the money for it. It's what they're choosing to do with it. So, you know, I, I always say during the height of the recession, somebody was making money. Why not you? So, so you know, that's the ultimate excuse is to blame it on, you know, the president, the Congress, the recession, et cetera. You know, I find another interesting, when you look back at the recession, you'll find this interesting, Sarah. You know, the pet world did not uh, suffer much of a recession. The stores like Petco. So in the height of all of that recession and lost income, we still spent the same amount of money on our dogs and cats. <laughs> so, so, Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And high-end sneakers, right? And Nike was doing okay. And cell phones? Of course. So scarcity is really bull. Uh, again, great ideas always get past scarcity, and hard work always gets past scarcity as well. All right, let's move on to ego, because to me, ego is actually the hardest excuse because it's so deeply ingrained in people. Do you ever know? You ever notice the guy with the biggest ego has the thinnest wallet? <laughs> <laughs> I try not to hang around big ego guys. Yeah, you know, to me, ego is drawn by success. And I grew up with a very successful family. My grandfather actually invented direct mail. My uncle was a hugely successful in the advertising marketing world. And I grew up around these bigger than life figures to me who were hugely successful. And uh, uh, they taught me at a young age. My uncle was a multi, multi-millionaire who wore no jewelry because he always used to say, you never want to look more successful than the people around you. You never want to put forth an ego that causes people to not want to give you money or do business with you. And I learned at a very young age that ego is really a, a, a only achieved with genuine success. You see, I can be egotistical if I was a billionaire about what I achieved in the publishing business or in the television business, but I can't be egotistical until I attain that point. So ego is driven in success, and the problem is when ego uh, 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 happens prior to success. And I'm not against ego with those who are successful. I think it can be a positive attribute, and it can be a, a tool to mentor because people with egos tend to have a presence about them. Sometimes that can be very meaningful to those around them. But false ego is what I'm focused upon, and ego before success is bull. Well, that's just bloviating. So what about, though, a different aspect of ego? I'll call it Freudian ego, like the self-perception and the limiting factors and the excuses in your self-perception. So you grew up thinking you were stupid. You grew up thinking that you weren't attractive enough. You weren't funny enough. You weren't whatever it was enough to be able to motivate yourself, to be able to make acquaintances with people, like whatever soft skills, you know, human skills. So I think you're combining, to me, the premise of self-confidence and ego, right? And I think that there is a pretty significant line between the two. You know, self-confidence, I've dealt with self-confidence in very interesting ways when I deal with individuals that I mentor and such. You know, it's really interesting to put into Google ugly billionaires and see what comes up. Overweight billionaires, low IQ billionaires. You can prove that anybody can be successful in a matter of minutes. So it's easy to break down those feelings, I think, logically. Now, how do you do it if somebody truly feels that their appearance is going to inhibit their success or their intelligence is going to inhibit their success? You know, those traits have to be proven wrong, unfortunately. I don't think you can say those things. So, you know, to me, the person who feels that they're not smart enough needs to prove to themselves that they're not smart enough. So we're back to fear now. So stupidity causes, or thought, thinking that I'm stupid or thinking that I'm incapable, causes me to be fearsome of stepping forward. I don't think it's the confidence. I think it's the fear that is the issue. We need to break down the fear so that they step forward even with less confidence. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let's move on to solutions because some of these, they're so deep. And some people, again, they're so ingrained in their excuses that they don't even realize they're making excuses. It's just what they do, right? It's, it's just raining out, and I simply won't be able to get there on time. It just is. So how do you help people even become aware of their excuses? Let alone on Bar Rescue, you're doing it in a matter of days, if not hours, to wake them up. Well, I use two basic tools, pride and fear. So uh, uh, you know, if, if you are in this spot where you're making multiple bad decisions and you're in debt and you're, con con you're continuing down this road of failure, you know, I'll start with pride. You know, what happens when the place closes? You know, how do your children feel about you? What does your husband and spouse think about you? And I'll try to 
get your pride to open your brain. If that doesn't work, it gets ugly. And you've seen it on Bar Rescue. I now start work fear and negative. What happens when you say no to your kids day after day after day? How does your wife feel about you? You think she respects you as much today as she did the day you married? she married you? What about your children? What are they going to say when your business is closed, when you lose your house? How does it feel to be a failure? I will be very heavy and very direct. And here's my logic. I have to get them because they have typically in a bar rescue environment, they somehow think they're right. So they somehow believe that the decisions that they've made are not causing their failure. Something else is right. They're blaming it on someone else. I have to take that failure and put it upon them and make them believe that they are failing. So I challenge them and challenge them and challenge them till finally in one fleeting second, they doubt themselves. Maybe he's right. Maybe I should have. Maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe I am. In that second, their brain opens a crack and I can walk in. But I have to break them down to the point that that brain opens and their confidence is shattered. It's a very hard thing to do to look a human being in the face and shatter them. And I have to do that very often on Bar Rescue. And I do it because I have the confidence in myself to put them back together again. Or I could never do it, Sarah. I couldn't live with myself. Now, you have to help them pass into the next. Like, now that you broke them, now how do you move through it? So, so I have to make them doubt themselves. I have to make them accept the fear. And the premise is, and you'll like this, if you wake up in the morning, Sarah, and go in the bathroom and look in the mirror and blame someone or something else for your shortcomings or your failures, you have no reason to change. But if you wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, wow, I'm failing because of me, you have every reason to change. I have to make them look in the mirror and say that to themselves. And you'll hear me say that on television. Tomorrow morning when you wake up, I want you to look in the mirror and I want you to call yourself a failure because you won't like it. And then maybe you'll change. All right, so what happens now? Because there's a very few number of people that have the good fortune to have you in their face and breaking them down and getting them to be aware of it. So what are the signs that somebody can possibly see in themselves that they're living with these excuses of you know, living as a victim? Well, I think one, you have to listen to yourself. When you say an excuse, you have to stop yourself right then and there and say to yourself, what action or inaction did I take that's causing me to lie to myself right now with an excuse? Because that's we're back to integrity and sort of lying to ourselves. You have to listen to yourself. My new book, by the way, that I'm working on is called Give Me Five Days. And the whole premise of the book is I want you to find a friend, a buddy who will be straight with you. You know, my wife will do this with me. I can, you know, we have the kind of relationship where we can do this to each other. I want my friend, my peer, my coworker, my spouse. Every time I say an excuse, I want you to bust me. Tell me if I miss it. Tell me, John, excuse, John, excuse. I want you to tell me. I want to get better. I want to stop using them. If we can identify those moments where we use excuses, we can start picking apart why. I totally agree with you, but there's so many people that are so checked out. Should they be looking at their lives and if they're going, my life isn't as good as it should be? I mean, is it to look at, if you're not happy, then there's likely an excuse around, no matter what it is. So if you're not happy with your weight, then get out of bed a little earlier in the morning or realize it's your hand on the donut, whatever it is. I mean, because again, at bottom line, I'm always trying to go, how can I get people to do it on their own and be able to identify, I mean, just make themselves aware of what they're doing? You know, I think you have to, if you're overweight and it makes you unhappy, you have to realize there are overweight people in this world that are absolutely happy. There are people without money in this world that are happy, Sarah. They live their life every day. There's garbage collectors that are happy. There's politicians that are happy, even in this ugly world in, in Washington, D.C. Every type of person can find happiness. If you can't find happiness, it's not your circumstance, it's you. I, I agree. We just need to make them wake up and see it and be able to identify it. It's a tall order, but, but here's the point. Here's the point. I think that people have to wake up and understand that there's their physicality, their mental condition, even their verbal skills are all not impediments to success. The only thing that is an impediment to success is their ability to proceed. Grant Cardone is a good friend of mine. He's a famous sales trainer. And Grant always says, you know, it's very easy. Just show up every freaking day. <laughs> but there's something to be said to that. You know, the overweight person who feels a lack of confidence doesn't show up that day. 
doesn't go to where they should, doesn't take that action. And that's the ultimate crime is the inaction. So I think we're back to the fear. It's the ultimate excuse. I shouldn't do it because of blank. I agree. Again, you had a lot of stories in the book of people who had, I mean, there's a million stories of people who had tough circumstances. People who were born into poverty, they were in, in abusive homes, they were whatever it was, and somehow they managed to break out. They managed to create successes for themselves. I and mean, people, as you said, there were a lot of them who weren't great students. I wasn't a great student, but somehow over the years, I became a really good editor, a really good writer. I managed to run a company. And you can overcome whatever it is if you're not happy with where you were, and if you're alert, and if you take the initiative to realize that it's up to you. And look at the extreme situations in life. Look at somebody like an Elizabeth Smart, who went through the terror that she went through and now can have a normal life. If people who have been through extreme situations like that can have successful, normal lives, any of us can. It's all up to us, it is. And, you know, those are big words. It's not easy to just say, well, I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning, John, and I'm going to be different. But you have to do it a step at a time. Attack one excuse. If overweight is your excuse, attack it. If lack of confidence is your excuse, attack it. Find that one thing that is causing an action and attack it. Don't embrace it. Don't love it. Hate it. Fight it. Beat it. Yes. So let me ask you this, though. Because there's that old saying that old habits die hard. So when you break someone on bar rescue and they have that moment, if you come back to them six months later, have they really changed or did they slide back to their old habits? You know, I'm really proud to say we run about a 68% success factor. The show is so intense, uh, uh, Sarah. It's so real to me. You only see 42 minutes of the days that I beat on them, work on them, manipulate them, build them up again. I can see in their eyes when they change. It's a powerful thing. It's so inspiring to me. Their posture changes, Sarah. Their facial expression changes. Different muscles tighten up. They walk differently. They have a different stride, pace to them. It's fascinating to see what happens when somebody truly goes through a change like that. And, uh, you know, the best part of Bar Rescue, unfortunately, you never get to hear. And that is that hug at the end because we have microphones uh, on our chests. So when we hug each other, we cover the mics. You don't get to hear it. The things that they say to me during those hugs, Sarah, are just remarkable. That's why after 189 or so bar rescues, I just keep doing it again and again and again. It's not the check. It's the hug <laughs> that, that gets me to the next one. Yeah. To see, to see that transformation, it just pains me to see people stuck and to, to watch. Oh, and then I meet their kids that night and I meet their wives and their husbands that night and their aunts and their uncles come and they all tell me how different he or she is. And it's an amazingly rewarding experience to think that I could impact somebody's life that way. And even it's more fascinating, Sarah, because the reality show environment is so unreal. There's cameras everywhere and lights everywhere. So this fake environment, if you will, creates the most real situations you could ever create. And, and you know, Bar Rescue is completely real. Not one word is scripted. And I think that's why it's lasted. And you're making them be aware and really confront things that nobody's ever making them confront. If somebody hasn't had that aha moment, but they start seeing their excuses, is it persistence? There are those that say that it takes 21 days to create a new habit or that it takes six months to create new habits. So is it just that once they identify a weak point, an excuse, like if they start seeing it, that they then have to have the discipline and consistency to overcome it, overcome it, overcome it. Like it's, it's like quitting smoking or changing any kind of bad habit. Yeah, I used the word. I, I'm completely fine with somebody hating themselves if that's what motivates them to change. If you hate something about yourself, hate is a powerful emotion. Hate it enough to change it. And, and, you know, sometimes, you know, psychologists say, well, gee, John, that's, you know, slams the face of self-confidence. And so, no, if there's something about you that you hate, I want you to hate it even more. I want you to hate it so much that you can't live with it, that you have to change it. And I find hatred can be a very powerful motivator to something about ourselves that we don't like. I'll tell you a true confession story. So I worked with an executive coach years ago, and I was complaining at one point. Again, it's always about my kids, so it just is. So some daughter, one of them, I don't remember which one, she was young, she was aggravating me. And we'd get into these arguments and she'd taunt me and then she'd run up the hall. 
And then I chase her up the hall. And my coach said to me as I'm telling her this story, she goes, who's being the three-year-old, her or you? I mean, she's being three, but you're being three. You're the one that's chasing her. And at that moment, I looked and I went, that's disgusting. And I never did it again. I mean, I hated it. I saw how disgusting it was, and I stopped it right there. And to be able to see that is huge. Very powerful. I did an episode of Dr. Phil a few weeks ago with Phil, and, and it was a similar situation of a child just completely abusing their parents and their parents just chasing them and, and completely buying into it. You have to hate it. You have to hate that behavior to really force yourself to change it. And realize it's ineffective besides which, because we can talk about parenting another day. Yes, that's a, that's a conversation to itself for sure. It's true. All right. So, hey, one last question. Again, I'm going to go back to men and women because I think that they're, they're different. Is it different for men versus women to change? Ooh, that's a, a, a really good question. I'm not sure I see much of a difference uh, 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 in, in one's ability to change over another's ability. Uh, I think that women have a sensitivity sometimes that men have that causes them to change in the moment, almost a, a little chameleon-like, if you will, right? Because women have this sensitivity uh, uh, to feel emotions, I think, a little more than men do. But I don't think there's an advantage one way or another who has a greater ability to change or not. I'd be curious to know the psychologist's interpretation of that, but I have not seen that. Do they change differently? Like when you go and break them down, do they react differently? Do they take different cues, different pushes? You know, like is it is it guilt for a father and his children different than what you nail a woman on? I think men are very motivated by, I hate to use this word because I'm using it in a different context than we did before, but I think men are very motivated by ego and doing well. And I think women are very motivated by compassion and doing right. And I think that the latter can be a bigger motivator. Yeah, well, or it's the way they're wired. Like women, women are wired yeah. for compassion. Not that men aren't compassionate, but men are wired. Someone once told me that men just want to be your hero. They want to be the provider. They want to be your safe space. I think that's completely true. There is nothing more important to me than the acceptance of my success of my wife and my daughter. So, so I, I completely buy into that hero concept. Well, John Taffer, you are wonderful. Thank you so much. Your book, Don't Bullshit Yourself, Crush the Excuses That Are Holding You Back, was incredible. Bar Rescue is an amazing show. And it's more than a bar story. It's really a human story. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure, Sarah. Congratulations to you and all your success. And I'll be reading. Oh, good. Good, good, good. Take care. Thank you. I'm talking to John Taffer, the host and executive producer of the popular and powerful TV show, Bar Rescue. Through his years of working with struggling businesses, John has learned that those who fail do it to themselves with a running string of excuses. If you don't crush those excuses, you simply won't succeed. John forces his clients to see their excuses, release them, and learn to act in their own best interest. He's just one of the thousands of experts featured in Bottom Line Personal who provide their expert advice that guides readers into action in their own lives. In addition to John's wisdom, Bottom Line Personal is filled with actionable advice on all aspects of your life, including living a healthy life, traveling safer and cheaper, finding the best insurance, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and even how not to get ripped off by your local bartender. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP.